0: For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you that, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner men, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory, in the Church, by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. There I have read to you again this prayer that the Apostle Paul offered for the Church at Ephesus. It's to be found in his epistle to the Ephesians in the third chapter, from verse 14 to the end of the chapter. Now, we've been looking at this great prayer, and in particular, We are now looking at this particular petition of his in which he prays that they may come to know this love of Christ which passeth knowledge. We have considered his definition of it. We have seen that that is something which we find in many places in the New Testament, that over and above that kind of conceptual apprehension in an objective way of this love, it is possible to know it in an experimental manner. The word know carries that uh, meaning, that signification, and if we uh, reduce the meaning of that word know from that experimental notion, we are doing violence to language and we are being dishonest interpreters. It is possible for the Christian to know this love of Christ in an immediate and direct and personal manner. Then uh, we have seen that uh, this is something which is uh, possible to all of us. With all saints, he prays that they may know this. And then we have given some examples and illustrations from the subsequent history of the Church, showing that what the Apostle here prayed for all Christians in his own day and generation, is something that has been verified in the experiences of others, of different types and kinds of temperament and psychology and of theological outlook. It is something that has happened in different places, in different centuries, and in all sorts of varying conditions. And then we have finally dealt with certain objections which people have sometimes had to this doctrine and teaching, uh, on grounds of philosophy primarily, the people who have felt that this is a dangerous sort of mysticism. We've looked at that, and we have answered it. Well, now then, what remains, of course, is for us to consider the very practical and direct question, which is how can we come to this knowledge? How can we attain to it? I take it that uh, there is no one who needs to be convinced anymore as to the possibility. I take it that we are all eager and anxious to know it and to experience it. Uh, frankly, my attitude as I present this to you again uh, is just this. I am quite sure that all of us, when we uh, get to heaven and to glory, will be amazed, not only amazed at what we shall then see and realize, but perhaps still more amazed at our own blindness while we were here on earth and in this world. Then we shall see clearly what might have been the case with us. We shall see what we might have enjoyed. We shall see how we have wasted years We shall see how we have allowed other things to come between us and this most marvelous and blessed thing that can be the lot or portion of any man or woman in this world. It is because I am conscious of that, that I am pressing this upon your consideration and attention. The whole thing is is shrouded, of course, in a certain amount of mystery, but I have the uh, New Testament authority for saying that it is possible for Christian people to know something of a sense of shame when they see him. The Apostle John, in that first epistle out of which we have read this morning, exhorts those people to press forward in these respects so that they may not be ashamed at his coming. There is such a thing as a judgment of rewards amongst believers. And we must consider this great matter. In the light of that teaching, the man who thinks that it's enough to say, very well, as long as I'm forgiven and as long as I'm saved, and as long as I know I'm going to heaven, all is well, he will discover that in saying that he has been rarely insulting his Lord, who meant him to have so much more, and whose object it was to use him to help others, and to use him as a pattern and as an example. So, apart from personal considerations, we must also look at it from that other angle, that the extent to which we are failing to conform to this particular pattern is the extent to which we are failing our blessed Lord himself. The picture that is given here is this, that God is our Father, And as an earthly human father is proud of his children and likes to look upon them and to smile upon them and likes everybody to think well of them, that God, as our Father, delights in us and is anxious to show us, to use the language of this apostle elsewhere, as patterns and examples of his handiwork. He wants to show his grace to others through us and by means of us. Therefore, I say, that for all these reasons, it behoves us to be intent upon this discovery as to how we, with all saints, may come to know this love of Christ which passeth knowledge. Now, there is a abundant teaching with respect to this in the New Testament. You've got it in this very epistle. There is a sense in which the remainder of this epistle rarely deals with this very subject. The apostle goes on in these following chapters uh, to deal with a number of matters in detail uh, concerned with conduct and behavior and things like that. Now all that is just the way of attaining unto this knowledge of the love of Christ. Very well, let me try to summarize it in the form of a number of principles. Now, the first thing I would do is to issue a negative warning, which is uh, an extremely important one. This uh, matter must never be thought of in mechanical terms. Uh, What I mean by that is this. It must never be thought of in this way, that as long as I do certain things, then inevitably and automatically I shall have the blessing. Now I say, it's never like that. That is never true in the spiritual life. Uh, I've used this illustration before. I use it again because I can't think of a better one. is nothing of the slot machine mechanism about the spiritual life. There are people who seem to think that there is that element. Uh, The cults, of course, are all characterized by that sort of teaching. This is all you've got to do is this, and there it is. You put your penny in the slot, you push it in, you pull it out, and there you have your piece of chocolate or whatever it was. That's mechanics. That's never the New Testament. So if we begin to think about these things in a mechanical manner, we are doomed to disappointment. Now, let me elaborate this just a little, because I speak my own experience. I know this very danger, and it's a snare of the devil. It sometimes works like this. You are reading the biography of some great saint, like one of the people whose works I've been quoting to you the last Sunday mornings. And there you read about this man who had been a Christian for years, but he'd never known this love. And then he tells you how he came to know this love. How did it happen? Well, sometimes it happens like this. The man had been seeking for years, nothing happened, and then one day he was reading a book, almost casually, and suddenly, while he was reading that book, the whole page seemed to be illumined, and he realized that God was speaking to him directly, and he came to know this love of Christ which passeth knowledge. And this is what we do, isn't it? I've done it many times. I say, what was the book he was reading? Right, I get that book, and now I begin to read that book, uh, persuading myself that as I read it, as it happened to him, it's going to happen to me. But I read the page, and it seems quite dead. You smile at that, you laugh at that. Now then, I wonder whether anybody who laughed at that knows what I'm talking about. If you've ever had that experience and know the disappointment that accompanies it, I don't think you'd laugh at it. I've done that many a time. But you see, that's the mechanical view. He was doing this and he obtained the blessing. If I do that, I'll obtain the blessing, but I don't. You'll find men who've said that they'd read their Bibles many times, they'd never seen these things then, suddenly as they were reading a given chapter, there it came. But it doesn't come. Now, let's get rid of that notion. Why is that wrong? Well, that is wrong for this reason. We are dealing here with personal relationships. And in the realm of personal relationships, mechanics don't count. Indeed, they can be the greatest possible hindrance. And we are talking not about some it, or some experience, we are talking about knowing the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. As we talk about knowing the love of a human being, and that's intensely personal and direct, so is this. So it's no use saying, if only I do this, or conform to certain, then, no. We must drop all that kind of thinking. We've got to start by realizing that this is something which is entirely in his hands. That he dispenses his blessings as he wills and when and where and in his own way. You can guarantee nothing in these matters. I mean by that you cannot give this kind of guarantee that if I do this then it must. No, no. You realize that in ordinary human relationships that kind of thing breaks down completely. The moment we think we are being bribed or got at or that somebody is trying to get round us, at once it quells every emotion and every real affection. And it's equally true, if not more so, in this great and glorious spiritual realm, with which we are dealing. That is why, you see, books and manuals on the devout and devotional life, while they have their uses and advantages up to a point, can, unless we are very careful, be extremely dangerous, for the devil will come in and introduce the mechanical element, and we shall be going further away from the one whom we are seeking instead of approaching him more closely and nearly. Very well, get rid of that. That's negative warning. Coming now to the positive, what can we say? Well, there are certain things that are taught very plainly and clearly. It isn't I say that uh, as we do these things, we are bound to know his love. No, but there is such a thing as putting yourself in the way of a blessing. We can't command blessings. God, in his own sovereign will and grace, dispenses his blessings. We can't commend them, but, you know, we can do what blind Bartimaeus did. He had heard that the Lord Jesus Christ was to be passing along a certain road, and he was wise enough to take up his pitch by the side of that road. And that is all that you and I can do. The Lord walks along certain roads. It is his custom and his habit to pass in certain directions. All I'm going to tell you is how to take up your pitch along the side of the road. Put yourself in the way of blessings. I can't guarantee anything, but I do know this, that the scripture exhorts us to do these things, and I think you will find that every saint who ever come to the knowledge of his love in this intimate and personal sense has generally conformed to these ideas. Very well, what is the first thing? Well, it's the thing that Paul himself has mentioned in verse 16. I'm not going back over that again, but I do have to remind you of it. We must pray for ourselves without ceasing what the apostle prayed for the Ephesians, that God would grant us, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. Oh, that's absolutely essential. We need to be strengthened with all this glorious might and power in this inner man of ours. Why? Well, I've told you that it is partly because of the greatness of the knowledge of his love, that it's something that can almost shatter the human frame, that it's such a glorious thing that a man can scarcely stand it. You read the accounts of every man in the Scripture, Who's come anywhere near God, and you'll find that they all, in some shape or form, say with Isaiah, Woe is me, I am undone, I'm a man of unclean lips. John the Apostle, when he has this glimpse, he fell down as one dead. We need this strength and this might. Ah, yes, but there's a further reason which I want to add. If we seek to know this love of His, as it can be known, well then we need to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner men, because as certainly as we set out in this endeavor, we shall become the targets of the very special and unusual attack of the devil. Now this is again universal experience, the universal experience I mean of the saints. No one has ever been tempted in this world by the devil as the Son of God was tempted. And the closer we get to him, the more shall we be tried and tempted. The devil does his utmost to prevent any man from becoming a Christian. If he fails, and if we become Christian, his whole endeavor then is to keep us as babes, to keep us with the first principles, to keep us with some very simple things which are almost childish And the moment we begin to grow and to develop, the devil becomes concerned. Why? Well, this is a higher recommendation for Christ. If we become men and adult, the devil's whole kingdom is shaking. He does his utmost effort to keep us back, so he trains all his forces and his powers upon us. Let me put it to you in the word of one who has a great authority in these matters. He put it in a very wonderful phrase i think he said baptismal moments are always followed by a temptation in the wilderness you remember you see what happened to our lord himself he's there being baptized by john the baptist in in the jordan he's setting out upon his public ministry he is now really being set apart to do the work of the messiah And it was in connection with that that the Holy Ghost descended upon him in the form of a dove. He's now equipped. He's sealed by the Father. He has been anointed by the Spirit to preach and to carry on the work of redemption. And you remember what happened immediately afterwards? He was led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil for 40 days. Baptismal moments are always followed by a temptation in the wilderness. And anybody who's ever endeavored to walk this road will know how absolutely true that is. The more we seek his face and the knowledge of his love, the more shall we become acquainted with the wiles of the devil and the fiery darts. Of the wicked one. Oh, it's a great privilege that. It's a mighty compliment that the devil pays us. But remember this, my friend, that he's so powerful and mighty that if you go in your own strength and power, he'll get you down. We therefore must pray that we may be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man, which this apostle puts in the last chapter of this epistle in terms of putting on the whole armor of God. And without it, we are doomed. I say I mustn't stay with this again, but you do see the vital importance of emphasizing it. The apostle knew what he was talking about when he wrote this. The first petition is that we may be strengthened according to the riches of his glory with might by his Spirit in the inner man. You seek to be near Christ and the devil, I say, will bring out all his reserves against you. You'll be aware of the depths of Satan in a manner that you've never even imagined. People who don't know really what it is to have an onslaught of Satan or to be a subject of a satanic attack are but babes in Christ. You needn't do this with the babes. But the moment you begin to grow and become a young man and go on and become the old men that John speaks about, then, I say, you can expect it. And so you find in the lives of all the greatest saints, side by side with these glorious experiences of the love of Christ, an awareness of a conflict, as if hell were let loose at times round and about them. A tremendous fight. So, you see, we are in a realm which is altogether different uh, from that mechanical realm which is uh, so obvious in the teaching of all the cults and, uh, less, in the teaching of all those who say it's quite simple. You just do this and you receive it, and all is well, and you go on abiding, and it's all so. Di- We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness. In the heavenlies, we are following in his footsteps. Who was tempted of the devil? I say in a manner that is inconceivable to us. Very well, there's the first point, but let me hurry to a second And this one, again, is obviously a vitally important one. We must learn to seek the Lord himself. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean this, that we must not be content with ideas concerning him. We must not be content with propositions about him. Am I making this clear, I wonder? Or does somebody think that I am standing in this pulpit to contradict myself? I spend most of my time in this pulpit impressing the importance of doctrines and of knowledge and of understanding. Nothing is so absolutely vital and essential. It's the whole purpose of these New Testament epistles. Yes. But it is never right to stop just at that. We must go beyond it and realize that the purpose of a knowledge of doctrine is to bring you to a knowledge of the person. It's the whole object and intent of doctrine, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. That is the acme. That was the ambition of the greatest doctrinal theological teacher and preacher the church has ever known, the selfsame apostle Paul. Doctrine and knowledge, I say, are absolutely vital. If we haven't got this, well, we'll become victims of a false mysticism, or we'll we'll remain babes in Christ. If you want to be strong and grow and become virile and powerful, well, you've got to understand the truth. Yes, but I say, then go on with that, and on its basis apply it and seek the person. It's a very subtle matter, this. And again, any of us who've ever be concerned, been concerned about these matters know what a terrible snare that is also. Sometimes you see a man in correcting a false subjectivism goes right over to the other extreme and becomes entirely objective and finds his soul and spirit have become dry. He's as wrong there as he was there. We always go from one extreme right to the other, and the extremes are always wrong in and of themselves. The glory of the gospel is it takes up the whole man. His mind, his heart, his will, the entire personality, and if any one aspect is lacking, there's a lack of balance, there's something wrong. So I say that there is an awful danger of being content with ideas and truths about the Lord Jesus Christ instead of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You love the ideas, as it were. You love the thoughts and the principles and the concepts. And you're so entranced by them that they're standing between you and the person. You are allowing the very doctrine about him to hide him from your eyes. What a tragic thing that is. I plead guilty to having done that for years in my own life. It's a terrible snare, beware of it. It's as dangerous, I say, as the false mysticism. It's as dangerous as remaining a babe in Christ. Or let me put it to you in a second form. Seek the Lord himself, I say, and not merely some general experience in the Christian life. There are experiences which come to us in a general manner in the Christian life. Thank God for them. Experiences of enjoying the word. Experiences that come in meetings for prayer. Experiences that come in singing a hymn. All they're endless in Christian fellowship and in many other respects. Thank God for all Christian and spiritual experiences. General experiences. But you know, while we thank God for them, we again, on this particular level where we are now dwelling, have to realize that even that can be dangerous. I do hope nobody is being discouraged by what I'm saying. If so, well, I'm preaching very badly to you. You see, what I'm saying is virtually this. Every level in this Christian life that you happen to pass through, you'll find that it's got its own set problems. You see, there are so many people who haven't an experience at all. They've simply taken certain things in their minds. They've never had any spiritual experience. Well, that is hopelessly wrong. And I spend my time in denouncing that, in encouraging people to seek the experience. But then they say, but now you're telling us to be careful even about the experiences. Certainly. Isn't this true of our ordinary life in this world? The problems of childhood are not identical with the problems of adolescence. And the problems of adolescence are not identical with the problems of middle age, and the problems of middle age are not the problems of old age. And as we go through these stages, it looks on the surface as if we are contradicting ourselves. It isn't so. We're in a different realm now. We've arrived at a different stage. And you may be doing now something that's almost a blank contradiction of what you had to do at an earlier stage. It's exactly like that in this life. Let me put it still more simply and directly and bluntly. There are large numbers of Christian people who live on meetings and not on the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, they feel a little bit disturbed or unhappy in their spiritual experience. That's the Holy Spirit dealing with them. Instead of doing what we are told here and seeking this knowledge of the Lord, this love of his that passeth knowledge... They go to a meeting, and in the meeting they're made to feel happy, and they go home, it's all right. And they go back, and they feel the same, then they go to another meeting, and sometimes you'll find that they almost have to go out every night to a meeting in order to keep themselves going and being happy. What's happening? They're living on meetings. It doesn't only happen with meetings, it can happen with books. Let me again plead guilty to this it is possible for you to live a kind of second-hand spiritual life. You do it in this way, you see. Feeling thus dissatisfied and disturbed, having a consciousness within you that your life isn't as it ought to be and that there's something much bigger and greater that is gloriously possible. You begin to read these books, as I say, the biography of a saint or some good book or something like that, and as you're reading it, Oh, you say, isn't that wonderful? And you can't help feeling that without having a corresponding feeling within yourself, and you feel happier and you feel better. You know, you can live on books instead of living on Christ. You can live on other people's experiences, which you read in that way or which you listen to, and you haven't got it yourself. But because you've had a comfortable feeling and a feeling a little bit happier, you're content, and you don't go on to seek Him. You stop at that. Or let me put it in one phrase, it is possible for us to so misuse the means of grace as to live on them instead of to know and to discover the giver of all grace. What a subtle thing it is. Yes, and it's subtle because we are born in sin and shapen in iniquity and because of the devil. So I am urging that the great principle at this point is this. Seek the Lord himself. Seek the person. The Christian life is not uh, simply to adopt a number of ideas. Christianity isn't a philosophy. It isn't a collection of thoughts and of concepts. The glory of this and the thing that makes it unique is that you're not applying a teaching here primarily. You're knowing a person. You're walking with him in the light. You say, I know him. And you walk with him. It's personal. It's individual. Therefore, the whole essence of this matter is to keep that ever in the forefront. That you must allow nothing, it doesn't matter how good and beneficial it is to you in your spiritual life to content you, until you can really say, I know him. Now, take this even in the matter of prayer. Prayer really means talking to God and listening to God and having communion with God. Now, that, you see, again, involves this personal relationship. And the moment I say that, don't we all begin to ask ourselves the question, what do I really know of prayer? You see, we can delude ourselves into thinking that uh, if we get on our knees and think certain good thoughts or certain good thoughts pass through our minds ostensibly to God that we are praying, well, I think that God in his mercy is prepared even to accept that. But that isn't true prayer. Our fellowship says John is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And when he says fellowship, he means it. He means knowing him. He means walking with him. The great George Muller of Bristol, who knew more about prayer than most people who've ever lived and adorned the life of the church. You will find that George Muller always taught this, that the first thing he always did when he prayed was to have a realization of the presence of God. He didn't bring his petitions forward until he'd realized God's presence. That was the secret of that man. You see, we talk about his great faith. Well, it was great faith, of course, but the real secret of George Muller was not his great faith. It was this principle that he knew God and he spoke to God as one who did know him. Realization of the presence And that is the thing that the apostle has in his mind here, of course. You can't know the love of Christ until you know Christ. And that is why he says, you see, to the Philippians, that I might know him. He did know him, but he wants to know him still better. It's a personal knowledge, this. And any attempt to lessen it or to reduce it from that, I say, is doing violence to the New Testament teaching. Therefore, the first thing we have to do is to realize the person and to seek the Lord himself, not his blessings, not thoughts concerning him, not teaching concerning him. All these things are wonderful and we must go on holding them, but don't stop at them. Go beyond them. Go through them and seek the blessed person himself. And then, of course, the next principle follows from that in quite a of in an inevitable manner, and it's this. Let us ever remind ourselves of the truth which the scripture puts so plainly before us, that he is within us, being strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner men, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Very well, we've considered that again. I'm applying it now. What we have to do at this point is to realize that he dwells within us. He has said himself, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man open unto me, I will enter in. And I will take up my abode with him, and I will sup with him, and he with me. Very well, that becomes a fact. And Christ is within us. I sometimes think that the realization of this is the most transforming thing that can happen to anybody. This is the essence of sanctification. Not trying to obtain some it. Not simply striving to live on a certain moral level. No, this is the secret of it all, to realize that he dwells within us, that he's there. Now, the apostle not only teaches this about our Lord, as you remember, he teaches exactly the same thing about the Holy Spirit. How slow we are to learn the great lessons of the scripture. Take the sixth chapter of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. There he deals with a very practical problem. He is dealing there with sin in the body. Flee fornication. How is that to be done? Well, he doesn't indulge in some vague moral teaching. He doesn't give them lectures on the medical consequences of sin. He doesn't make some general appeal. This is how the apostle puts it. What? Notice that word. What? Where are you, you Corinthians? What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and you are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. That's the way to overcome sin. To realize that the Holy Ghost is dwelling in us, your bodies are the temple of the Holy Ghost, so that whatever you do with your body, the Holy Ghost is involved, as it were. Realize what you do. What? The whole secret of sanctification is just to know how to utter that word, what? So that when next you're tempted, when the devil comes and tempts you to any sin in any shape or form, you stop and you say, what? Incredible, unthinkable, impossible. The Holy Ghost dwells within me. My body is his temple. Christ is in me. We talk to ourselves like that, we apply the truth to ourselves. And it is because we fail to do this, I think we'll all agree that we are as we are and we are what we are. But the teaching of the scripture is that he dwells within, in this way, and therefore We must constantly remind ourselves of that. We are seeking this person. And we say, yes, I don't realize it as I ought, but he is within me. His word is true. He's never broken it. I, therefore, am going to live as a man who knows that he dwells within, who realizes that he dwells within. I am not my own. He has come. And, therefore, my whole outlook and my whole attitude is going to be determined by this. And that brings me to the last point which I would make this morning, which is simply this. That having taken these steps, we must ever, therefore, positively and actively seek his love. The apostle is praying that they may come to know it in its breadth and depth and length and height. And I say that having realized the possibility and realizing these truths, and now being intent upon the person, we must seek him. Seek him himself. Seek to know his love. Go to him. Apply to him for this. And once more you will find that that has been the universal practice of all who have ever been able to testify that they have truly known this love. Again, I take you back to Philippians 3 where the apostle puts it so plainly before us. That I may know him. He's already had experiences of him. He wants to know him more. What do I do? Forgetting those things that are behind and pressing forward. I go on. He's seeking him. That's it. Like a man straining at a leash. You noticed it in the Psalm, Psalm 63. You'll find it in Psalm 42. You'll find it constantly in those psalms in the Old Testament. Seeking him, the living God, anxious to know him and his love. Why? Well, thy loving kindness is better than life. Better than life. I'd sooner know thy love, says the psalmist, than to live life at its best. I would sooner be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the ungodly or to put it as it's put in a hymn. Here is a man, you see, who had known this love. So he goes on to say, Tell me, tell me thou art mine, O Savior. Grant me an assurance clear. Banish all my dark misgivings. That's the prayer. Tell me thou art mine, O Savior. My dear friends, if we but applied in the spiritual life what we know so well in the natural life, how different things would be. There is nothing that we desire more than to be told that those whom we love, love us. Actions are not enough. We like to be told it. Tell me. There's nothing that can replace that. We want the statement. We want the word. And it's as true in the spiritual realm. Tell me thou art mine, O Savior. Grant me an assurance clear. Well, there are these Essential principles, there are others which I'm going to work out in detail. How do we ask him? How do we seek him in that way? What else have we to do? God willing, we shall proceed to consider these matters. I have dealt with preliminary matters in a sense, but they're absolutely vital. I trust that we've got rid of the mechanical notion once and forever and that we are now realizing that nothing matters but the person and the knowledge of him who dwells within us. And who, as it were, is still at the same time standing at the door and knocking, anxious to dwell with us and to sup with us, to manifest himself and his glorious love to us. Amen.